0: Back in the early 2000s, when I was working on a biography of Barry Bonds, I interviewed a man named Jose Rodiles, a former Arizona State pitcher who then spent a few years in the minor leagues. Jose gave me some great college memories of Barry Bonds, unrivaled details of a superstar before superstardom. And a day or two after speaking with Jose, I approached Barry at his lockers in the San Francisco Giants clubhouse, asking for his cooperation. Just so you know, I told him, I've interviewed hundreds of people old teammates, old coaches. I just spoke with Jose Rodiles. Jose Rodiles, Bond said. I don't know who that is. And then he walked away. Hmm, I thought, that's weird. So I called Jose the next day and I said, this might sound strange, but Barry told me he doesn't know you. Doesn't know me, Jose Rodiles replied. The guy was in my fucking wedding. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Slinging Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every week. Today's episode stars John Feinstein, the author of 43 books, many of them New York Times bestsellers, and one of my true role models, sports journalism. This is episode number 183. Let's Sling Some Yang. Dad, being quarantined sucks, and so does your podcast. All right, John, first of all, this is a, uh, I would say this is one of my bucket list episodes of this podcast. So I, uh, well, you know what's interesting? This is, I hope this comes out right. Every now and then people will say to me, oh, you're trying to be Feinstein. I'm up I've written nine books and I'm working on my 10th and you've written 8 million books. And people are like, oh, you're trying to be Feinstein. I'm like, I'm not trying to be you because every book I write kills me. Mm -hmm. And I was actually thinking about that. You've written more than 40. How many I, on your website is 42? Is it 42 accurate? 43 number? now. I have a, a new kid's book that just came out. All right. So 43 books. I've written nine. And I honestly, every book I write guts me, truly guts me and kills me. Mm-hmm. How have you been able to survive doing these? And do you not does the do the do you not suffer the emotional wear and tear and the physical burden and everything that comes with this?
1: Oh, I think all of us suffer similarly, Jeff. Um, it's just that I think my, my background as a newspaper guy helped me from the very first book I wrote, which was Season on the Brink. Uh, I, I got into, a, I'm, a, I'm a creature of habit, and I got into a habit of waking up in the morning and depending on time of year, working out, reading newspapers, uh, reading what I wrote the day before and editing it, then taking a lunch break, and then one o'clock in the afternoon, I'd sit down and write. And I'd, I'd just keep writing till I was tired. I didn't say I'm going to write 1,000 words or 2,000 words or whatever. I just wrote. And then when I started to feel tired, I'd stop because I realized early on with, when I didn't stop, the stuff I wrote after I got tired was so bad I had to trash it anyway. Right. So it was a waste right. of time. And I've always been a fast writer. And I think a lot of that is because I write very much like I talk. And so I kind of hear the words in my head. But I also think the one thing that has helped me in, in, in my nonfiction uh, I've written 29 nonfiction books, has been trying to overreport. report You know how that is. Bob Woodward, when I went to do Season on the Brink, said to me, your goal should be to know more about Bob Knight than anybody who's ever lived. You may not meet that goal, but the closer you come to it, the better off you're going to be. And I've taken that approach with every book I've written. I have failed in every single time, I'm sure, to become – the expert or know more than anybody on a subject except maybe Patriot league basketball. Um, but by taking that approach, I know and I'm sure you had this experience and other writers have this experience. If you sit there and you write and every 20 minutes, you check the word count, you're in trouble. Yeah. If you sit there and write for three hours and look up and go, Holy cow, I wrote 2000 words, then you've done your job. And that's been my experience more often than not that, If I've done my job as a reporter, the writing isn't that difficult to me. I don't know about you. The hardest part of writing a book of the writing part of a book is the first five chapters, you know, figuring out where you want to begin and getting into the flow of the book. And once you are able to do that, it kind of comes after that. I'm going to be as geeky.
0: This is going to be as nerdy a podcast as you've ever been on. I promise you. Um, so when I do a book, I basically give myself about two years, right? It's about a two-year process to write a book. Mm-hmm. And I will take a year and a half and just report. So the first year and a half, all I do is report. Right. You, if you look by, I have folders upon folders and I print out every, yep, and, and blah, blah, blah. You start a book. What is your, I don't know, maybe you have two years or a year and a half, whatever you take to do it. What is your, how does it work for you?
1: I'm the same as you. Uh, people always say, you know, do you start writing while you're reporting? And the answer is always no. Uh, For me, it's because I don't know my beginning until I know my ending. Mm -hmm. I need to know where the book ends, where the story ends, how the story comes out in many cases, because I'm reporting events as they go on before I know where I want to begin the book. Uh, And so I I make no attempt. I don't even make an attempt to do an outline uh i don't know about you i get very annoyed by publishers who when i'm halfway through the reporting process say could you just send me a little sample or or they want to come up with a title yeah and and you don't come up with titles i don't think when somebody says sit down and find me a title you come up with titles when something hits you in the shower uh I, i always tell the story about the way i came to season on the brink for a title was uh, Indiana was playing at Iowa on a Thursday night. They got killed. Game was over by the second TV timeout. Flew into Minneapolis the next morning. And of course, Knight had to sit up till three in the morning looking at tape. Got up five hours later. And Sid Hartman, who I'm sure you know the name if you didn't know him personally, mm-hmm. just passed away about a month ago was a buddy of nights and he comes walking in when everybody's having breakfast. And he quickly figured out that you weren't supposed to talk because when night was in a bad mood, no one was supposed to talk. So as we're walking out, Sid turns to me, figuring I'm safe and says, so what are you going to do all day here in the snow in Minneapolis? And I said, you know, kind of self-deprecating. I guess I'll do what I do every day. I'll just follow night around. Well, Knight was walking about five feet in front of us and he turns and comes back and starts screaming at me. Don't you ever call me Knight? Who do you think you are? You're nobody in basketball compared to me. All this Knight stuff. Perfect. And I had learned by then, it was early February, that if I wanted to debate something with Knight, I never did it in front of his coaches. I did it when we were alone because if I did it in front of his coaches, he had to win the argument. So I just said, I'll see it at practice, Bob. And I walked out and I walked out in the snow and I'm walking around. I was pissed. And I said to myself, every day we're on the brink of another disaster. Every day we're on the brink of something. And I went, "Uh uh-oh, that's the title. But I like to, uh, you know, I'm methodical. I'm like you. I do all my reporting. When I feel I'm done with my reporting, and, you know, sometimes as you're writing, you have to go back and ask somebody a follow-up question. But I'm done with my reporting. I sit down. I do an outline so I know where I want to begin. And then I start to write
0: as my career has, has sort of progressed, my book proposals get shorter and shorter and shorter, which is yeah. nice. I always tell people, I think you may disagree with me. I consider book proposals a little bit of bullshit because I always say, how am I going to know what the book is really going to be and try right. to interview the 500 people I'm going to talk to? I don't know. Is, is, it,
1: is it bullshit? Is it kind of a lie? Is it? Well, I, it is and it isn't. I, again, when I did my first book proposal, it was 23 pages long. Right. Because the agent I was working with had no idea who I was. The publishers had no idea who I was. And given that five publishers turned the idea down, clearly most publishers had no idea who Bob Knight was. Right. So I needed a lengthy proposal to introduce myself and the idea for the book. And of course, the thing that I pushed was the access that Knight had said he would grant me and that he did. Uh, and like with you, as I got further along with the proposals, there there were times when I didn't even write a proposal where I just got on the phone with an editor and said, I want to do this. That's the best. Yeah, no, that's the, that's (laughs) the best. And, and, and sometimes you just, you just know it's, it's, it's good. And if you, if you've got the right editor, they know it's good. Other times, you know, like when I proposed a civil war, my book on army Navy, my agent and my editor and Bob Woodward, I keep bringing his name up, but he's been a mentor for 40 years said, why don't you just do a magazine piece? Nobody cares about Army-Navy anymore. And I, my point was, it doesn't matter that they're not playing for national championships. They're unique kids, and I want to write about them. And, and on trust, more than anything, my, my editor allowed me to do the book for a lot less money than I'd been paid for uh, the books I had just done. And But mo- most recently, the, the, the most recent book proposal I wrote was on a book I'm working on right now on race and sports that I'd wanted to do for several years. And when the whole Lamar Jackson thing happened, everybody's saying he should play another position. Uh, and then of course they took an African-American to draft him, Ozzie Newsome, and we all know what's happened. And and to me, that was a way I, I, I knew I wanted to do the book, but I needed a way in. And I saw Lamar Jackson's my way in. So I went to my editors at Doubleday who I've worked with for, the last five or six books that I've done. And I said, I want to do this. And the first response I got from a guy named Bill Thomas, who's the boss, was, well, you can't write a book on race. You're white. And I said, isn't white a race? And he wouldn't even agree to read a proposal. And my agent, Esther Newberg, agreed with him, basically. So you're wasting your time. I wrote a proposal. She sent it to five publishers. Interestingly, the same number that turned down Season on the Brink. They all turned it down with, you know, polite rejection letters. I don't know if you've ever gotten them, but I certainly have. And I finally went back to Michael Peach, who had been my editor at Little Brown for 15 of my books. And he's now the CEO of Hachette. And I said, Michael, you know how I work. You know why I'd want to do this book. And he was the one who finally agreed to let me do it. But Uh there I wrote a long detailed proposal, and I'm not sure half the publishers even read it. I wrote a book
0: two books ago about the United States Football League. The
1: USFL. I remember it, yes.
0: And my agent said to me, literally said to me, "Jeff, nobody wants a fucking USFL book." And I took, I took less money. I wrote a Favre biography first and took less money from a publishing company that they let me do the USFL book. The satisfaction when that book made the New York Times list.
1: It's one of those right. things. Where like you know, you know, it's right. a good book. You know you have a good book. Yeah. And and one of the things that bothers me, especially today, because when I first started writing books, you had to sell an editor. Mm -hmm. Now, the editor has to sell the sales force. Yeah. And since when did salespeople become the be-all and end-all of what's going to make a good book? And and that really pisses me off sometimes, because they'll say, well, could you add this to the proposal for our salespeople? And I want to say, no. No. Right. But- but I had a similar experience with the book I did on Patriot League basketball, uh, which, again, nobody wanted me to do. But I, I was sick and tired of big time basketball. It had gotten so sleazy. And it's funny, 20 years later, of course, it's at least as sleazy. Um, but I wanted to do the book. And I basically said, I'm going to do the book. And I Who'd did you say it. that to your agent. I said it to my agent and my editor and Michael Peach, who was my editor at the time. And, you know, again, I got paid a lot less money up front than I had been getting paid. Um, my previous book had been a follow-up to A Good Walk Spoiled, The Majors, and I'd gotten paid a lot of money for that. So I, I took the small advance, and I still vividly remember how I found out the book was on the bestseller list. I actually gave, I actually gave a speech at Harvard, and um, I told a funny story about how I had thought my dad wanted me to go to Yale because he was teaching at Yale at the time. And I didn't want to go to Yale because it was cold and snowy and it was a city campus and Duke was beautiful and warm and girls everywhere right. and, a, and, a, and a, much, much better swimming pool, which was important to me because I was a swimmer. And I finally said to my dad, dad, I got to go to school where I want to go, not where you want me to go. He said, well, you, you never even applied where I wanted you to go. So What are you talking about? I applied to Yale. I got into Yale. He said, I wanted you to go to Harvard. And I said, you never said a word about Harvard. He said, yeah, I knew you couldn't get in there. (laughs) So I had told that story at at Harvard and I was driving down the Massachusetts Turnpike to Hartford because I was doing stuff in Hartford the next day. And I pulled off the road at the last rest stop before I-84, got something from McDonald's, went to the bathroom, got gas, and I called to check my messages at home. This is 2000 before we all had cell phones. And there was a message on the phone from Esther Newberg, my agent. And all it said was number 12. And I s- literally started jumping up and down right there. Uh, I was so excited about it. And I can, I can honestly say I was ex- as excited about that as I was when the two books I had that went to number one went to number one. So I know how you felt about the, the USFL book. I can, I, I can relate. I'm sure you've had
0: these. I, did a, I had a Cowboys book come out, 90s Cowboys book.
1: And I did a, uh, a
0: book event at the SMU Bookstore. And I would say seven people were there and I walk out kind of dejected and my evening right. calls. And he's like, he goes, you're number seven, motherfucker. And I was
1: <laughs> like, oh. <You> know, like. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, we all have those moments. I mean, you talk about uh, doing book signings. I, I can tell you both sides in my life. The first book signing I ever did was in Bloomington okay. shortly after season on the brink came out and it was at a place called TIS bookstore that was right off the campus. And I was supposed to be there at two o'clock. And I pulled up at 145. And as I walked in, there was a line around the bookstore, around the block. And I'm going, what is going on here? They, what, they, they got some celebrity here. And, and I'm no, nobody's going to buy my book. I mean, the book was just out. And I walked in and the manager said, how do you like the line? And I said, well, who's it for? He said, it's for you. <laughs> and for me, I ended up signing more than a thousand books. That's awesome. And then went to another bookstore and that day sold another thousand books. The next year I was sent to the Miami book fair. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's a big deal book fair. Yeah. And this was when my two years later, when my second book came out a season inside and I went to check in author check in and they said, Oh yes, you're on the children's alley. I said, the children's alley. What are you talking about? Well, it's a sports book. We put you on the children's alley. Okay. So I go where they tell me to go. And the first thing, they had us do was, you know, there were like seven authors. The other six had written books like Goodnight moon, you know, and, yep. and, and people were lining up with their four-year-olds to get the book signed. And then there was me. And so we're all sat sitting at tables and nobody comes near me. I mean, nobody. Finally, a guy walks up and says, are you John Feinstein? And I, Oh, thank God. I'm going to sell one book. And I said, yes, I am. And he said, you're the Miami heats mascot. And I said, what? And he said, well, right here on the program, it says John Feinstein, four o'clock, John Feinstein, Miami Heat mascot. And what they had done was they had scheduled me to speak at four o'clock. But because they figured the kids would be bored, they had the Miami Heat mascot there to entertain them while I was speaking to them. But they left out the semicolon. Wow. So it looked like it said John Feinstein, Miami Heat mascot. And I said, no, I am not the Miami Heat mascot. And he went, oh, turned around, walked away, never sold a book. So just to be clear, you are not the Miami Heat mascot? I am not now and have never been the Miami Heat mascot.
0: The day after my agent called me and said, you're number six, seven, whatever, they arranged a signing at Fort Hood. And I was, they were like, it's going to be great, blah, blah, blah. It's big, blah, blah. I drive out. It was like a three-hour drive early in the morning. I get to Fort Hood. I'm picturing like a room, maybe a bunch of soldiers, you know, and you're talking about the Cowboys. They put me in front of their basically their Walmart on the base with a stack <laughs> of books and a table, and they go... Attention customers, Jeff Perlman is signing his book. Four hours, three books signed. Well, you did better than I did in Miami. Look at it that way. Have you had a good number of bad book signings or was that your only one? Like have you had your first Oh, I've had, a,
1: I've had some others that you would certainly not describe as good. I remember doing one in Detroit uh, where I sold one book. <laughs> um, but I, I become more careful because, as you know, bookstores will always say, oh, come and do a book signing because- they can send back all the books they don't sell, right? They get them on consignment. If they get a hundred Jeff Perlman books and you sell three, the 97 go, but they keep two more, you know, they get you to sign some stock, So they might sign, they might keep 10 and then the rest will go back. So what I, I try to sort of pick and choose now I say, well, what, what makes you think this will do well? And oftentimes they, you know, they have a good answer and, and, and the book signings are successful and I enjoy them actually mm-hmm. except when you're in miami or whatever but i enjoy them because i like meeting people and having them tell me stories about their experiences either with people i've written about although if i hear one more story about it, i was standing near tiger woods when he hit a six iron on the 14th hole at augusta i'm gonna throw up right my friend a friend of mine
0: john Wortham. i don't know if you know him it's know Editor, john sure he uh he once did a signing he had a book come out about indiana high school basketball and they sent him to a bookstore in indiana and he gets to the bookstore and the bookstore is closed. doesn't exist. It's actually was shut down and closed. And he calls his publisher and says, the bookstore is not here. And the publisher says, that's weird. They've always been good to us.
1: <laughs> yeah, you, you, you never know what you're going to get when you show up for a book signing. That, that's that's true. I, I've taken to bringing my daughter when I who's 10 now when I do local book signings, because anybody who walks up and sees her with me, how can they not buy a book? She's just too cute. Right. There you go. The sympathy cell. Nothing wrong with that at all. Take it any way you get it. Yeah. Uh, one more quick story about that. My brother, who is a big golfer, was playing a few years after season on the brink came out in a, a pro-am event in Indianapolis. And one of the guys he was playing with, most people in Indiana loved me. They, they loved the book. They, they, they weren't shocked to learn that Knight uses profanity or anything like that. But there are loyalists because Knight said, you know, the book was terrible or what. He didn't say the book was terrible. He said, I should have left out his profanity. But this one guy says to my brother, I bought your brother's book. I used it for firewood. And my brother said, hey, build a bonfire. We don't care what you do with it as long as you buy it. <laughs>
0: That's awesome. I was actually wondering, like, um, my first book was about the 86 Mets. And it came out about 17 years ago. And it's still my best-selling book. It's nowhere near a season on the brink in sales, but it's my best-selling book. Right. And people will say, oh, I love that book. I love that book. And I see a lot of flaws in that book. Like I wrote it when I was about same age you were, Season on the Brink. I was about 30. And I look back and think, I wish I knew now what I knew then about writing a book. And I wonder, with Season on the Brink, it's, it's still your most famous book. And it's a book that right. I sold the most. Do you look back and think, oh, that's perfect. That's just the perfect book. Or do you look back and think, I really could have done some stuff. I
1: know now what I didn't know then. I have never looked back at a book And I do look back at them for different reasons. Sometimes it's just to look up a fact or something, but I've never looked back at a book and seen anything close to perfection. Uh, I I, I think I'm a better writer now. I like to think I'm a better writer now than I was back then. I remember Dean Smith used to always say, I think I'm a better coach now than I was a year ago. I hope I'm a better coach a year from now than I am now. And I look at it that way with writing. I mean, I try to read good writers uh, as much as I can, I look at sentence structure a lot more now uh, than I used to. I mean, I used to, honestly, Jeff, I used to end sentences with prepositions all the time. And for some reason, editors didn't fix it. And now I'm hyper-conscious about not ending a sentence with a preposition. I'll rewrite it four times if I have to, to try to get it to the point where it reads well without ending on the word two or something like that. So I have never thought season on the brink was my best book. I, I I think Knight made it what it was because he did, he stuck a hundred percent to the access that he'd promised me. And, you know, people ask me all the time about why I say good things about him, even though he's got huge flaws. I mean, he he's, he's a bully. He can be very mean spirited. He's not loyal uh, to, to friends the way he should be. But, and, and, you know, he said terrible things about me that were not true, but, I couldn't have written that book without the access he gave me, and he never backed off from it. So for that, I'm, I will always be grateful. But I, I think I'm better now at my craft than I was 34 years ago. I hate to admit it. And if people ask me what book I'm most proud of, the, and I just ended a sentence with this preposition, <laughs> um, my answer is a Civil War because I, I, of the kids I wrote about who are now men in their 40s. But I think I made people understand why those guys were special. And that book still sells to this day and was a bestseller, even though people didn't want me to do it. And so I'm, I'm uniquely proud of it. And also, I'm, I'm, I don't know if proud is the right word, but it means a lot to me that most of those guys are still good friends yeah. all, all these years later. So the answer to your question is I'm very proud of Season on the Brink. I think I deserve credit for having the idea and for convincing Knight to give me the access, but I do not think it's my best book, and none of my books have been perfect.
0: Before we continue with Two Writers Thinking Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my son Emmett, who started COVID as a squeaky-throated boy and is now a deep-voiced man. It's all because of 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. Really? I assumed it was puberty. Maybe, but every order of a throwback jersey, hat, or t-shirt comes with a case of camels. I've been smoking like a chimney, Dad, thanks to 503 Sports. Shit, what? Just kidding. Wishful thinking. It's hormones. Now, one of your books that fascinates me, and I remember being fascinated at the time when it came out, was The Punch, which came out in 2002. It's about the infamous, I guess infamous is the right word, December 1977, Kermit Washington punches Rudy Tomjanovic's NBA Game. It changes both their lives. What I find really interesting is it's not an obvious topic for a book. You know, like, it's not like, oh, this is going to be a huge seller. We should do a book about this punch. Like, it's not an obvious seller. Number one, what made you write it? And number two, how hard is it to convince a publisher to let you write it?
1: Well, uh, several steps there. I knew who Kermit Washington was because he went to college here in D.C. at American. And a lot of my older colleagues at The Post talked about what a great guy he was. So I, I, I had a, some sense of him and I was actually in my car one afternoon driving downtown and I heard him on with Jim Rome and whatever you want to say about Jim, he and I have been friends for 30 plus years. And I love he, Jim Rome. He's been him. great to me. Yeah. And, yeah. And, I, and so I was listening to his show and he had Kermit on and Jim's a very good interviewer. He's underrated as an interviewer. And I heard this incredible pain in Kermit's voice as he was, uh, as he was talking. And as soon as I got home, I called Travis Rogers, who was then Jim's producer. And I said, do you have a number for Kermit? And he gave me Kermit's number. I called him right away. Uh, he was running a restaurant. He had a restaurant in Portland called Slam. And I got him on the phone and I told him who I was and that I had heard his interview. And would he be willing to to cooperate on a book if I could get, get it, put it together? And he said, He said, yes, I'd be happy to, but you'll never get Rudy to do it. And I didn't know if that was true or not. But I then put in a call to the Houston Rockets to see if I could somehow talk to Rudy. And the PR guy, who now works for the NBA and who is a good friend of mine, in spite of the fact that he went to Notre Dame, said, write Rudy a letter, write him a letter. So I did. I wrote him this long letter. You know, I went and researched the, 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 the punch in detail as much as I could and explain why I wanted to do the book. And I could understand why he wouldn't want to talk about it. But it had been, at that point, it had been almost 25 years. And Tim Frank, the PR guy, called me back. And he said, Rudy read the letter. He knows who you are. He respects your work. He just doesn't want to do it. So I thought, okay, I gave it my best shot. And I'll try to make this long story a little shorter. I then started in on another golf book. But my my second child had just been born. And it was going to mean a lot of travel to do the work for this book. And I just, I knew I didn't want to do it. I just knew I I had a contract. I knew I didn't want to do it. So I drove to New York to see my editor, Michael Peach, to tell him in person that I didn't want to go through with the book. And literally, Jeff, as I was driving across the Delaware Memorial Bridge, I was listening to WIP, the all-sports station in Philadelphia. And it was an update. And they said, the Houston Rockets will be in town tomorrow to play the 76ers. And I just, something said to me, there, there, there's a karma thing or something going on here. I'm, I'm giving up on this book. I'm on my way to New York and I hear this. So I called Tim Frank again and I said, is there any chance Rudy would talk to me in person if I came to Philly tomorrow? He said, let me ask him. So Tim called me and he said, come to our shoot around at noon. And when shoot around's over, Rudy will talk to you. And I'm thinking, great. He's going to talk to me walking to the bus, but okay. Drove up to Philly got there during the shoot around. And as the shoot around was ending, they were still shooting free throws. Rudy walks over, shakes hands and says, I understand you wanted to talk to me. And what I had done, Jeff, I don't know if you ever went through this, but I compiled a letterman's list of the 10 reasons he should do the book. So we sat down in an empty section and I started into my list and I started with number 10 and I think I got to nine and he said, I'll do it. And I was stunned. I, you know, he turned me down. He said, I'll do it. And I said, really? And he said, yep, I'll do it. And I said, OK, I don't want to jinx myself here, but what changed your mind? And he said, I know your work. I, I know I know what you do. And, and I, I think I do need to talk about this. And so I'll do whatever you, you want. And then I had to talk my publisher into it at that point. And I called my, Michael Peach back, and, who I'd seen the day before in New York, and I told him what had happened. And he said, I think it's a great idea. He actually loved the idea right away, to his credit. And it, it turned out, I, I, I thought it was a really good book. Rudy was very honest. He talked about going through alcoholism and how he had recovered from it. And he and Kermit actually became friends after the book. I sort of, I sort of connected them. So that's, people, it's funny how people will sometimes out of the blue say to me, I love the punch or I love the Civil War or whatever. But that was a book I was very proud of. I love this quote you wrote. Um,
0: Rudy really looked straight across the court at the empty seats. This is when you met him and and he said, Someone once told me that hating Kermit would be like taking poison and hoping someone else died. I've always tried to remember that. Right.
1: I think that's a money. Yeah. Quote. It's it's a great it, and and it and, and, and it's it's a quote from a man who's looked inside himself a lot, in which he had done especially dealing with the whole with the alcoholism. So yeah. really, really good guy, Rudy. So recently, you know Jonathan Igg. Yeah. Yeah, well, so, I know I know who he is, yeah. So he's a, he's
0: a good friend of mine. And recently, I had a book come out recently about the Lakers. And I noticed the New York Times has changed their bestseller list. Where, down to 10. Down to 10. And they got rid of Extended. And they no longer do, like, sports bestseller, blah, blah, blah. So if you're not top 10, you're no, not yeah. making it. And I was talking to him about it because we were talking about how now, if you're not a TV celebrity, it's really hard. If you're not a celebrity chef, it's really hard. If you're not on some MTV show. Or if you're
1: not a right winger who whose minions buy out half a bookstore.
0: Exactly. It's really hard. And I think my last book, which just came out, will probably end up being my best selling book. It was about the Shaq, Kobe Lakers. Right. And selling great. But it, it didn't sniff the list. And I was really um I was really disappointed. I was really disappointed. I've always used that as my kind of measure. Do you make the list? Do You make the list. Is that a stupid measure? Is that just me being, do I need to grow up a little bit in that one?
1: No, I, I think it's a human measure for all the reasons you mentioned. We, we all have to accept the fact that make, making the list isn't going to be as easy as it was. I mean, there was a period in my life, I don't want to sound conceited, but making the list was like an automatic for me, right. particularly with my nonfiction, but even some of my fiction. And now it's not. Um, the book I did most recently, The Backroads to March, which came out in March, and it was hurt in terms of publicity because of the pandemic. I was supposed to go on the news hour the night before everything shut down, and obviously, once that happened, I was canceled. So you, you lose stuff like that. Um, and I didn't. It didn't make the list, but it's selling. It sold extremely well because people were looking for something to do during the pandemic, and they didn't have the tournament to watch. Right. So you, you have to. I try not to judge my books on sales or on whether they make the list. And yet, of course I'm affected by it. And, and you, I also try I've been very lucky with reviews through the years. Uh, I mean, 95% of my reviews have probably been good to gr- very good to great. And yet I still pout a little bit about some of the bad ones. So, ultimately I try to judge did I do my job? Did I did I write a good book? And I think I'm a pretty good judge of a good book because I've read a lot of books. But it's only human to say, I'd like to be on the list. And I, I don't know why the Times has done that. I've asked my agent about it, and she just goes into a tirade about what a bunch of assholes they are. Yeah. And they pretty much are. Yeah. Because it, 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 what it does is it hurts the book business at a time when the book business is struggling. I mean, it's better to have more books be able to be identified as New York Times bestsellers. And I, I've never known why the New York Times list is the list, but it is. Yeah. And, you know, with the extended list, there was a period there where like every book that was published, it said New York Times bestseller on it. Yeah. But there's a happy, happy middle ground. And I think the Times has gone too far in one direction. I mean, even Tom Brady's book didn't make their list. Yeah. You think that was automatic. Do you feel like there are people in the literary
0: world who take the kind of books that we write and dismiss them
1: as useless bullshit? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, of course, there are people like that. I, you know, early in my career at the Post, I, I worked in Metro for several years. I was a night police reporter, a courts reporter and a political reporter. And when I went back to sports, one of my closest friends is David Marinus. Love him. David and I went to lunch with a guy named Patrick Tyler, who is an investigative reporter, went from the Post to the New York Times. Nice guy. But we were, while we were having lunch, Pat said to me, you know, I'm really sorry, John. I just don't read your your stuff anymore, because by the time I get through the front page and 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 metro and and uh, op ed, I just don't have time to read sports. And he looked at David and he said, "Do you have that problem?" David?" And David said, "No, because I start with sports." And there are always going to be people who are going to think it's beneath them uh, to read sports or to for you know and look down at people like you and me who write about sports. I wrestled with that a little bit when I went back to sports, because again, Woodward basically recruited me to stay and work with him, which was awfully hard to turn down. But sports was my number one passion, and it still is. I I think that those are people that aren't worth worrying about. You write for the people who understand. See, what I've always said, Jeff, and I think the same is true of you, is I write about people. I don't write about games. I write about people who happen to be in sports, whether they're players or coaches or, or whatever managers umpires if you have a good story uh, that's what again the, the army navy book none of those kids went on to be rich and famous but there are great stories to be told whether people are famous or not famous and and i don't or in sports or not in sports do you have tricks to get people you're very good obviously at getting
0: people to open up to you and confide in you and sort of engage with you are there tricks you've learned along the way
1: I don't know if I have tricks. I, I think the, the, as you know, the advantage of writing a book is that you have time mm-hmm. and, and you can develop trust with people. And, you know, when I'm doing books that are, as I said before, ongoing, there are days, like when I've done golf books, there, there have been days where I'm supposed to talk to someone after they play. And if the guy shoots 75, I'll always say to them, hey, look, if you want to postpone this, you, you don't feel like talking. A lot, of time, a lot of times they'll say, no, 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 it's fine. And other times I'll say, yeah, can we do it another day? My favorite one was when I was doing a good walk spoiled, Curtis Strange was one of my guys. And Curtis, good guy, bad temper. And he's playing at the Memorial, Jack Nicklaus's tournament, and we're supposed to have dinner. And in, the, in those situations, I'd always try to walk with the guy. So I had a sense of his day and his round when we were talking. So I walked with him and he's playing fine. He's two under par through 16 holes. And then he finishes double bogey, double bogey. So now I'm not sure what, what's going to happen. So I waited for him outside the scoring tent and he walks out of the scoring tent, looks right at me and just keeps going. Okay. Then he goes out on the range. And in those days at Nicholas's tournament, because he wanted to make it like the masters, the media wasn't allowed on the range. So I waited till he came off the range. He comes off the range. Same thing. Looks right at me, keeps going. So when he walked by me the second time, I finally said, so I, I guess we're not going to have dinner today. And he goes, what was your first goddamn clue? And I said, the first goddamn double bogey. And he started laughing. And he said, I'll meet you in the lobby at seven o'clock. And it, <laughs> and it was fine. But the, the advantage of a book is you're not on deadline. You know, you don't have to talk to the guy who's just given up a game winning home run or, you know, missed, missed a, a game winning basket, whatever it might be. And so you do have a chance to develop trust with people. And the other thing I've always done, Jeff, is I try very hard to talk to people in situations where I'm not reporting, where I'll walk out on the range at a golf tournament without a notebook and I'll just start talking about last night's basketball game or how's your family or try to remember, you know, the guy who has the 12 year old son who's a soccer player. And that way they see you as a human being, not just as a reporter. And I think that's helped me a lot, too. Do you transcribe your own interviews? I do. I do. Um, I when I did my first baseball book uh, back in 1992, which was called Playball, I hired someone to transcribe. And what I found was two things. One, it, if they can't hear something clearly, they just write inaudible. And you got to go back and listen to the tape anyway to find out what what you might have missed. But beyond that, I realized that when I transcribe, I hear things on the tape that I didn't hear during the interview. Because, you know, when you're doing an interview, especially when it's a long one, you're always thinking, okay, what have I missed? What do I need to ask next? How much longer do I have? You get a little distracted sometimes. Yeah. So when, but when you when you're transcribing, even though it's it's tedious work, as you know, you you pick up stuff that you miss. So, yes, I always transcribe my own stuff.
0: I've gone a little lazy with my recent book <laughs> project. I found a, a college kid who came to me and said, I'll transcribe for a quarter of a minute. And I was like, ah, that's a pretty good deal. And now a I'm a little worried because I actually agree with you. I think it embeds the information in your head when you transcribe it. So I'm worried that my laziness. Well, you see fall.
1: what happens. You yeah. see what happens. And, 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 and remember, if when, you, when you get the transcriptions back, and this is what I did with the baseball book, uh, if it doesn't contain everything you thought was there, you can go back and do
0: it then anyway. Right. Um, I just want to say something that made me laugh. I'm, I was reading your Amazon reviews of uh, The Backroads to March, your most recent book. great review, great review. Great review. One star review, right from Robert Blair, and here's the review: Poor quality warning. I've been a regular buyer of books from Amazon, not anymore. The bindings of these, la- the binding, and <laughs> like buddy, well, ruining my five stars over the binding. Come on, yeah. Man.
1: I, you know, I, I don't, I, I rarely read those reviews because there's always one like that. Yeah. And like I said, I'm not going to remember the the five star reviews. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be pissed off that. Why is this guy complaining about the binding on the book? I had nothing to do with it, but they, you know, <laughs> that's life. Yeah,
0: I have two more questions. Number one, I always ask this: Bobby Knight not included, okay? What's the worst confrontation you've ever had with a subject
1: in your career? Funny thing is, I never had a real confrontation with Knight um, after the book came out. He told people what a terrible human being I was, but he never actually confronted me. The one thing he did do was uh, he kept me out of a game that next season. And I was playing at in Indiana and the post wanted me to cover the game. They were ranked one and four and, Oh, we don't have room. We can't give you a credential, you know, no room at the end. And of course I ended up being interviewed on NBC at halftime of the game because I'd been banned. I mean, he helped book sales. Right. And that was when Ahmad Rashad asked me, you know, coach Knights called you a pimp. He's called you a whore. How do you respond to that? And I said, I wish he'd make up his mind so I'd know how to dress in the morning, which <laughs> Turned out to be one of my more used lines. That's good. Um, but I, I, I oh, I'll tell you, Danny Ford, the old Clemson football coach, when they were on their way to winning the national championship, I wrote this long story on Clemson and how good they were and their players. And an editor, a guy named Mark Asher, who's no longer with us, who was a complete pain in the ass. And I hate to put things on editors because they saved me a lot more than they hurt me. But he had written something about uh, uh, an investigation into Clemson's basketball program several years earlier. And after I left the office the day the story was running, he went into the clips and he pulled something and and ended up getting it wrong. He wrote that the football program had been investigated, like in 1975, which it hadn't been. Mm -hmm. And it runs under my byline. So that Saturday, I had to cover Clemson at North Carolina. And after the game and the Clemson people were all over me and it's, you know, it's very hard to say, well, an editor screwed me. I mean, you kind of have to take the hit. So I went to see Danny Ford and I, and I told him what had happened. And, you know, I said, look, Danny, I'm really sorry about this. We ran a correction the next day. And he said to me, if you ever come near me in a place where nobody's looking, I'll kill you. Wow. And I said, well, that would be a bad idea, Danny. That would be an overreaction. And he said, well, you did this. And I said, no. And I said, and he started talking about other stuff in the story that was true. He said, why did you write this? And I said, because it was true. And when he won the Orange Bowl, they won the Orange Bowl that year. I made a point of going and finding him. And I put my hand out. and I said, congratulations. And he said, thank you. So I remember that one. And, and there have been other ones. I mean, I used to have confrontations with Lefty Giselle all the time when I covered Maryland. Got really mad at me one time because he had benched somebody. And I was 22 years old and I looked 18. So I just walked into the dorm to find the guy. There were no, you know, nobody had phones in their room at that point. Walked into the dorm, found him. He talked. He bitched about being benched. And I wrote the story. And he said, when, when, when did you talk to him? I said, well, I went and saw the dorm. You can't go in that dorm. Why not? You know, of course, nowadays I never get in. Yeah. Um, but Lefty and I ended up being close friends. And so I can't remember, other than the, when Danny Ford said he'd kill me, I can't remember anybody ever really threatening me.
0: I'm going to throw in a change up here just because you're there. How good would Lenny Bias have been as an NBA player? He would
1: have been great. Yeah, He would have been great. Um, he, I mean, I saw him play a lot at, at Maryland. And, and Red Auerbach never got over his death because he, when he thought about putting Bias on the court with with Bird, who was still healthy at the time, and McHale and Parrish. I mean, God only knows how many more championships they might have won. What Bias had was he, he was such a, he jumped like Jordan. I mean, he was comparable to Jordan's jumper. And in college, he was a better shooter. Mark Allery, who played at Duke and ended up playing the NBA for a while and was a good defender in college, tells a story about his senior year. Bias was a senior, too. Duke was really good. It was Krzyzewski's first Final Four team. And they're playing Maryland at home. And Krzyzewski comes in and he says, now, look, we don't double team people. We guard people man to man. And he looks at Allery and Billis and he says, which one of you has got bias? And they both went like that. Allery was quicker. So he's assigned to bias. And he said, you know, I did the best defensive job I've ever done in my life. I got through every screen. I had a hand up on every shot. You know, I made everything tough for him. And uh, he said, we won the game. I went in the locker room. I grabbed the stat sheet to see what I held him to. 41. That's how good bias was. And he was also, he was getting better. I mean, I saw him as a freshman. He was good. As a sophomore, he was really good. As a junior, he was really good. And as a senior, he was great. And I think he would have continued to improve.
0: It's crazy he'd be approaching 60.
1: I know. I think he would have turned 57 yesterday or the day before. Yeah. How do you think that makes me feel Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) in terms of age? What are you working on now? Well, thanks for asking. I actually have a bunch of stuff going on because the pandemic sort of made me look in different directions for things to do. I mean, I have a a new kid's book out. Uh, This one is called Game Changers. And interestingly, I wrote it a year ago, uh, more than a year ago now. And it has a racial element to it. It, it. it involves junior high school basketball, but there's a, a, a coach who is, is a, a latent racist and it leads to all sorts of problems uh, within this basketball team. Uh, and I was never thinking about George Floyd or anything like that when I wrote it, but I have always, I believe for years and still believe that race is the elephant in the room, both in sports and in society. And we're certainly seeing that right now. And I've done something I've never done before. I've done an audio book an audible book. And I, interv- I, I interviewed five people who I've known for years and years. Krzyzewski, Tom Izzo, Mary Carillo, David Faraday, and Steve Kerr. They're all really smart people. They all have unique stories. And I've known them all forever. So the book is called The Friends I've Made. And it's about five hours long, about an hour each. And uh, I, I, people, at least early response, find some of the things that they've said to me fascinating. A lot going on uh, right now.
0: Do you feel like as print has this sort of uncertainty to it, even books to a certain degree, Yeah. you feel sort of a need to continue to not maybe not reinvent, but sort of play with different areas and maybe you never would have thought of?
1: Well, I think it's, there's two things to it, Jeff. One, I think when you do new things, it keeps you fresh. Huh? Uh, Tony Kornheiser made a point to me many years ago that I still remember the first summer I covered tennis, 1985. He said, this is the best work you've ever done. And I said, well, why? I mean, I'm a basketball guy. I know basketball best. He said, that's the point. You had to work harder because you don't know as many people in tennis and you haven't been around the sport as much. And you did work harder. And so I always try to look for fresh things that will keep me motivated to keep learning. Uh, I think that's certainly part of it. And yeah, we all know that our business publishing has certainly changed. I mean, even John Grisham's making less money than he used to make. And I love working for The Washington Post. I'll work for The Washington Post as long as they let me. I still love print journalism, whether it's online or in the newspaper itself. I love the rush of writing on deadline uh, and telling a story in that context. But at the same time, I need to be doing different things, too, just just. You know, I I I don't have as much energy now as I did 40 years ago, Jeff. Yeah. And, and I know that. And uh, so I, I try to look for things that will energize me. Well, you know, I would buy your next book, but I just
0: was really turned off by the binding of the last book. <laughs> <laughs> it really was upsetting. Buy it on Kindle. <laughs> well, John, seriously, I, I was actually thinking this. Like, people in sports are always like, oh, I wouldn't be able to do this, if blah, 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 blah. But I do feel like you really have paved a way or a path for people, other people like myself to do this in their profession. And I have immense, immense respect and appreciation for your work. I really do. And I, I'm flattered that you did this today. And it means a lot to me. It really does.
1: Well, I'm flattered that you asked to be honest and, and, and thank you for the kind words. And I, I, I've always enjoyed your work. Um, Not that we want to get into a love fest here, but I have. And uh, I do, I do, I, I have to say, I get a tremendous feeling of pride when younger writers like yourself um, say to me that I somehow contributed to them doing what they do? Because that, that does mean a lot to me. I'm just happy to be still considered a younger writer. I would take that. Well, it's all relative, right? <laughs> uh, leave you with a last quick story. I ran into John Wooden at the Final Four in 2003. Uh-huh. And he, he was always great to me. He's a wonderful man. And he said to me, what are you working on? And I said, coach, I'm doing a book on a dear friend of yours, Red Auerbach. He said, oh, Red He's such a nice young man. Red was 86. Awesome. But John was 93. All right, right, right. So, right. Admit. <laughs> so if I ever want to feel young, just talk to Feinstein. You'll feel I'll Talk to me that. and
0: you'll feel young. Yes, I can do that for a lot of people now, unfortunately. I want to thank today's guest, John Feinstein, for joining me on Two Writers Singing Yang. You can follow John on Twitter at JFeinsteinBooks and visit his website, JFeinsteinBooks.com. Music is by the fantastic MCYL. Thanks again for joining me and remember,
1: keep riding.